Well, hello, everybody. My name is Nate. If I haven't met you, I'm so happy you're here. I want to say hi to everybody who's online, some of you guys, of course, being in the room, and then people who are going to watch, oh, different cities, different places, um, on televisions and, and computer devices. So just so happy you're here. And regardless of where you're at in your own spiritual journey, we're happy you you joined us. Um, we understand that people are spiritually unresolved, and one of the reasons we exist is to help people in that, to help them move to a place where they can make a decision about who Jesus is. So <laughs> I want to talk for just a couple moments about some of the realities of where we find ourselves. Um, isn't it strange that in the matter, uh, just the course of what, three or four months, um, even as a church, an industry, some of you have gone through this and other things, we went to about 90% of our church would be in attendance in the room and 10% online. And in just a few months, it swapped to about 40% in the room and 60% via online. So what do you do in a time like that? Well, I'm always a big fan of having people in the room. Um, But I also realized, hey, this is a brand new era. And it's been fascinating to me how actually um, the, the congregation has actually expanded over these months. Um, multiple percent. And now regularly we have people in 35 different states, multiple people in those states gathering every week. So what do we do in this new reality? Well, here's what I know. Our message remains unchanged. So we'll stay stubbornly committed to the message of Jesus. We call it the gospel, which means good news. We will be very nimble and very flexible when it comes to our methodology. Okay? So the message committed to it. That doesn't change. Methodology, we always are going to have to adapt our methodology. We've been able to do church kind of the same way for several decades. So I'm actually really excited about the future, what that looks like. And we're going to explore, we're going to be as nimble and as flexible as possible to be, this is what we're calling, we're calling it one audience or one congregation. So people in the room and then people throughout the state of Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, every state imaginable, we're just one group. We're in different places. So Being an optimist, I say we just moved to 600 campuses across the United States and other parts of the world. So we're going to figure this out. Why? Because Jesus is good and he builds his church, right? He's not freaked out by anything, so it's going to be okay. Hey, we're in this series, we're calling it Picture Bible. And just a really quick summary, we're looking at some of the stories in the Old Testament in particular. So the Old Testament are the books written before the arrival of Jesus to planet Earth. So these books are thousands of years old. And these are the books that if you had a kid's Bible and you thumb through it, these are the stories that kind of stand out. And um, I've had experiences with my kids where you're reading these stories and they ask questions. And these stories, these accounts, this text, more than any of us would even be aware, have shaped Western thinking, culture, and values. Some of these stories are at the root of our current laws that exist today. Um, In just a couple of weeks, we'll look at the Ten Commandments. And you'll see those permeate our values as society. So they're very important. They're very influential. Then there's another reason. is I understand not everybody is familiar with the Bible or has read these stories. And so it helps us all just raise our biblical literacy as we make our way through this. So this week, Moses. Moses. Now, if there was, even if you haven't read the Bible through, you've probably heard a little bit about Moses. Not just because there was an animated movie, 
right? Although it was a pretty good animated movie. I was surprised. Where they, they Prince of Egypt, right? It's about the life of Moses. So here's a little bit of the background before we jump into the text. The Hebrew people have been slaves for four centuries, 400 years in Egypt. And Egypt has now found it a very convenient way to keep their economy thriving, that they have probably a million, a million Hebrew slaves, and the Hebrew slaves do all the service work for them. Uh, they, they build everything that Pharaoh would say is important to be built. But they're in this form of oppression, crying out to God, saying, God, where are you? Now, the Hebrew people, God continues to bless them, even in their slavery. So their population begins to increase. And Pharaoh, king of Egypt, becomes nervous. He says, if we're not careful, even though these people are oppressed, they're going to outnumber us and they may rise up and overtake us. So this horrible thing happens. Pharaoh says, here's what we'll do to keep them in check, keep them subjugated, keep them subservient to us, is every male child we will kill. So it's just this mass form of genocide. Every newborn boy who's born to the Hebrews will be killed. Well, Moses is born during this time. Talk about a hostile environment to be born into. Moses' mother says, there's no way this is going to happen. So she secretly gives birth, and then she secretly hides her son for as long as she possibly can. But she eventually comes to the place where she realizes, I'm going to have to do something desperate. So she builds a a little um, boat out of reeds and seals it up tight and takes her infant son It pushes him into the Nile River. I mean, think of the desperation in a mom just saying, God, you are going to have to take care of this boy. Well, God's providence, he floats down the Nile River, avoiding all the crocodiles apparently, and ends up coming to right where one of the princesses of Egypt is bathing in the river. So this is probably more of a ceremonial bath than anything. She takes a little boy. She can probably tell he's Hebrew, right? He would have been circumcised as a young boy. And she says, you know what? I want this kid. So she raises this Hebrew boy in Pharaoh's household, and he becomes a prince of Egypt. So he lives, think of all the tension, right? Genetically, you're one thing. Culturally, you dress, you look like, you've been taught to think like an Egyptian. But this tension comes to the surface when one day he's out and he's observing a building project, apparently. And he sees an Egyptian slave master beating a Hebrew mercilessly as something in him snaps. Even though he looks like an Egyptian, he's been accepted as Egyptian, he realizes that's not okay. Somebody needs to do something about it. So he responds, he reacts in anger, he tries to stop, but in his fit of rage, he actually murders the Egyptian. He's now committed a capital offense. So he flees for his life. He leaves behind everything that he ever knew. He ends up hundreds of miles away in the desert of Midian. And at a well, he meets a family. He eventually marries one of the daughters. And then guys, get this. He goes to work for the next 40 years for his father-in-law. Anybody think that sounds like a dream job? 40 years managing my father's sheep. So now he's a shepherd. It's dramatic change. Prince of Egypt, wealth, opulence. Now an escaped fugitive in a desert working for his father-in-law for 40 years. Now where we're going to pick up is just one of these days. One of these days in the desert. It's actually called the backside of the wilderness. That means like Booneyville. Nobody's around. 
He's watching his father-in-law's sheep, and this is what happens. Exodus chapter 3. We'll read the first 15 verses, and then we'll move into Exodus chapter 4 and read a few verses there. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. He uses Moses' Hebrew name, which means child of the water, child of the water. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. These are the people we've read about in the previous weeks. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, that land, into a spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I love he doesn't actually answer him. He said, I'll be with you. You're really nobody, right? The point is, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain. Moses said, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, um, Moses continues to debate with God on whether or not this is a good idea for one man to go back and to face the most powerful empire on the face of the planet at the time. And to set these slaves free, take a million people across the desert. Verse 4, we'll pick it up. We'll read verses 1 through 3. So Moses answered, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, because somebody else is scared of snakes. His name is Moses. And then, of course, God says, pick it up by the tail. Anybody who's been around snakes, that's not where you pick up venomous snakes, right? So Moses does it, 
becomes a staff again. God says, okay, you still, you, you're still confused. You're still fearful. Take your hand, Moses. Put it inside of your cloak. Take it out. It's got leprosy. Moses, put it back in. Take it out. Now it's clean. So God is proving. Listen, I'll have power to take care of all of these problems that you're concerned about. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord says, okay, I'll get your brother. You remember him 40 years ago? He's still there in Egypt. He's eloquent. I'll speak to you and then you speak to Aaron and Aaron will speak to the people. Verse 13, Moses is all out of excuses. So he says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Verse 14 says, and the Lord got ticked, basically. This is Moses, seriously, let's do this. Okay, go. Okay, so this huge story that really, really, it's going to be at the backdrop of so much that we understand about two things. One would be human, humans. Okay, there's going to be two things here that help us understand who we are, how God works with humanity. Two is there are these important lessons about God. So this is the first place in the entire Bible that we are introduced to the proper name of God. We'll study that in just a moment. So these, these are influential. They, they, they begin to then create themes that are carried out through all the Old Testament. So four things. Here's the first two. Two things that we can learn about humanity from this passage. Number one, let's talk about availability. Availability. We often think about the problems. We consider the problems in our world. For Moses, it would have been, there's oppression, right? There's his own personal failure from the past. There's the fact that he's been separated from his family for four decades. There's the fact that he's a murderer, right? We look at the problems in the world around us, and now as much as ever in my lifetime, If we had criticism, cynicism, confusion, and complaints regarding everything that just seems to be chaotic and wrong in the world. Now here's the tendency. Human beings always back up and we we, we point at the big issues in the world. We point at the big issues in our communities and we say this. Somebody should do something about that, right? Somebody should do something about poverty. Somebody should do something about injustice. Somebody should do something about every issue that's out there. And the tendency of human beings is we become cynics and critics. And we're looking for somebody. We look for institutions. We look for governments. That's how these problems are solved. Here is this theme that we pick up here, and it will continue throughout the Bible. That God does his work on planet Earth through human beings. And so he is looking for people who are available, right? So it is not my pedigree. It is not my ability. It's not my capacity. It is my availability that is most important in life. God is constantly saying, who can I use? who rather than being a cynic and a critic will say, this is wrong and I volunteer. 
You know, one of the little prayers that <clears throat> we've prayed at our dinner table every night is when it's my turn to pray, I, I, I pray this. I say, Lord, we pray for, you know, those who are hungry tonight and uh, poverty, brokenness in the world. And we ask that you would help us to be part of the solution. Here's why I started praying that. Because I'm pretty good at pointing out all the things that God should do in the world. Anybody else good at that? When you pray, God, you need to do this and you need to do that. I realize, okay, that's not really how God does things. God uses people who are available. And one of the disturbing things is God uses people who are available and imperfect. God uses people I would prefer he didn't use. Like, are you going to use her? Him? What? God is looking for availability. In fact, there's a scripture in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 that I'd like to read to you. So Isaiah is having this dialogue with God. He's a future Old Testament prophet. And um, God's pointing out what's wrong in the world. And this is what God says. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Do you get this crazy theme? God's looking for somebody. And I said, here am I. Send me. Isaiah says, I'm available. Moses says, here I am. I'm here. Now, he's going to have to deal with all of his insecurities eventually, but it starts with availability. I think God is continuing to ask this very question today. Who will go? Who can I send? Who's willing? Who's fed up with the status quo? Who wants to be a part of the solution? Am I available to whatever it is that God might ask me to do, to be a part of? Here's the second thing we learn about human beings. Not only is God looking for people who are available. Two, my liabilities matter less than I think. Okay, so Moses says, here I am. Isaiah says, here I am. And it's true in the Isaiah passage as well. Isaiah starts to wonder like, oh, but now I'm remembering my past. Moses suddenly becomes aware. When he finds out that God says, okay, I'm going to work through you. Moses is like, oh, no. I'm just remembering. I'm a convicted murderer. Um, I'm old now. He's like 80 years old. He's like, oh, no, 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 I, I, I don't speak very well. So Moses starts to go through this litany of problems, right, his liabilities. He says, oh, well, I was at first available, but now I remembered everything is wrong with me. I can't speak very well. We don't know if he had a stuttering problem. We don't know if uh, he had a lisp. But there's something where he just was terrified to speak in front of people. God, I don't even know who you are. I don't know who I am. I doubt they'll believe me. I think this is an impossible situation. And finally, he just says, God, could you please find somebody else? Because I've got all this baggage. I've got all these problems. I've got all these challenges. God is looking for people who are available. Available people soon realize they don't have adequate resources. That they're not up to the thing that God is looking for someone to get involved in. The problem is too big or they are too average, too old, too young, too scared, too whatever it might be. We look behind us and we're reminded about what we have done 
or haven't done. We're reminded about the patterns from the past. We get anchored to our failures. And even if we want to be available, we say, but no, 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 God, no, wrong guy, wrong lady. You could find somebody else. It would be way more efficient if you would use so-and-so. Here's what God says. Your liabilities do not disqualify you. This is one of the introductions of this idea of radical grace. That my past, the things I'm ashamed about, my, my failures, my, my averageness, does not mean that God doesn't want to use me. He will use me in spite of what is there. In fact, it'll go on as we get to Jesus eventually in the New Testament. The teaching is this, is that what Jesus did upon the cross through his life, living the life that we could never live, and then dying in our place and then resurrecting, that the cross is adequate to cover all shame and all guilt for all people through all time. That I no longer have to worry about what was because I'm forgiven. I do not have to be tied down by my past failures. I don't have to be tied down by my sense of guilt and shame because it was dealt with completely and in totality through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What are your liabilities? You're to what? I don't think God cares about your liabilities. So he's looking for people who are available and he can deal with all of your liabilities. Now let's move into these things that we learn about God because these are incredibly profound. God is, okay, point number three, God is. Everybody's always wondering about God. What's the nature of God? How do you define him? Um, if I took you up to my office, I've got bookshelves of books that people have written. Some of them are massive volumes. They're systematic theology. They're biblical theology. Everyone wants to know what's the nature of God. Here God is going to reveal some very specific and very poignant aspects to who he is. God says, first of all, Moses, one of the things that you have to know is I am a God who cares. So do you think that in 400 years of slavery, how many hundreds of thousands of prayers have been prayed? God, save us, deliver us, bring us to freedom. The question that they begin to ask is, is God immune to our suffering? Does God hear? Does God care? And so God introduces himself this way. He says, Moses, I know it doesn't feel like it, but I have heard I've heard every groan. I've heard all of the pain. And I am responding to that. His response isn't as immediate as anyone would want. But here's what God says to us. Every human being in the room has asked this question. Every human being who's watching has asked this question. God, do you care? Do you care about my life? And the answer emphatically is God introduces himself as yes. I've been watching it all. I know your history. I know what you've experienced. I am a God who cares. Second, we, we learn this. God is a deliverer. God is a deliverer. God says, here's what I'm going to do. It is in my very nature that I take oppressed people 
people who cannot free themselves, people who cannot manufacture their own freedom, who can't fight for themselves, and I break them free into a new existence. I am the great deliverer. This is one of the ministries of Jesus. Read through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies about Jesus. You will find this theme over and over, that Jesus shows up to a city, shows up to a town, and he always engages with people who are broken, who are incapacitated, people who are tied up by spiritual forces, and he delivers them. Okay? So part of the nature of humanity is we deal with addictions. We deal with unforgiveness. We deal with family of origin issues, all of these things. And they, if we're not careful, begin to control us. And so God shows up and he says, Moses, here's what you need to know about me. I am a God who brings freedom. I bring life to the oppressed. I bring freedom to the prisoned. So this changes things for all of us. If that's what we know about God, there is nothing just holding you. That is holding on to me that God can't deal with. He's the God who brings freedom. Now, God's going to introduce himself in some other ways. He's going to introduce himself as the God who is close, the God who is personal. So imagine, here's this bush, and it looks like it's on fire. It's some sort of phenomenon. We don't even know how to describe it. It's not being consumed. What comes out of this burning bush? A voice. What does the voice say? Moses. Moses. This is a God who knows the name of forgotten people. This is the God who knows Moses' Hebrew name, which in all likelihood he hadn't gone by in a very long time. He is now a part of a Midianite culture. He no longer even has his Egyptian name. This is a God who calls him by his Hebrew name, child of the water. Moses, Moses. So there's this aspect to God that he is close and he is personal. The New Testament writers put it this way, that God knows the number of hairs on your head. And for gentlemen, a lot, that's changing daily for most of us, right? So the point is this, is that God like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I lost 150 more last night, but I still, I'm keeping track. That God is that involved and that in tune with who we are. Okay, so that's part of who God reveals himself as. I know your name. But then simultaneously, God reveals himself in a very different way. As Moses, here's his name called, he begins to approach. God says, whoa, stop. Don't get any closer. Take off your shoes. Where you're standing is sacred because I'm here. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, you never wear your shoes in a place of worship. It's, it's like bringing the, the, everything that's tainted in the world before God. So Moses takes off his shoes. And this God knows his name, but this God, your proper posture and attitude towards him is one of reverence and worship and awe. God is personal, God is holy. And here's the challenge for all of us. We tend to gravitate to one or the other. And the Bible is going to walk us through having a balanced perspective of both. The other day I ran into a young man. He, I really think he loves Jesus and he had a hat on. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. 
I was like, maybe a little unbalanced over here, right? I don't think Jesus is your homeboy. I think you're Jesus's, right? You got the possession wrong, right? Jesus don't belong to you. You belong to him. So some of us, it's true. Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. There's this proximity. Theologically, we call this the imminence of God, the closeness of God. Simultaneously, God is holy and sacred. Some of us are imbalanced over here, especially if you're raised in a religious form, a rigid form of Christianity, where you kind of think of God as unapproachable and he's kind of the big angry God in the sky and you gotta like, you're always feeling timid and afraid. That's probably too much emphasis on this sacred holy aspect of him. I think really understanding the nature of God is right here in the middle. He knows my name and my place before him is in worship and awe and reverence. He loves me and he is all powerful. This is called his transcendence, his imminence and his transcendence. So God then moves into this next thing. Like Moses says, well, who are you? Here's where God is the big reveal, the big reveal. It's never been touched on anywhere up to this point. God says, okay, I'm going to give you my name, proper name of God. We don't even know how it's pronounced. Because it was never pronounced out loud. It was so sacred. A Hebrew person would never say the name of God, the proper name of God out loud. And there's another problem. The ancient Hebrew doesn't have any vowels. So even when we read it, we have to guess which vowels are in there. But we think it's this. You pronounce it Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, here's the unique thing. When, God, when Moses says, like, like, who are you? Tell me your name. You're asking me to go back and stand in front of Pharaoh where I'm a wanted man and tell him that he has to disrupt his entire economy. He has to tear apart his culture and let the slaves go. Like, give me a good name. And, and like, I think Moses is thinking, tell him I'm the God of thunder and lightning. I'm the God who brings pestilence. And this is what God said. He uses the Hebrew verb to be, to be. Just go back and tell Pharaoh and all the other Israelites, tell them that I am has sent you. It's like an incomplete sentence, right? You am what? Like, like that doesn't work for me. Here's what God is saying. So his proper name is this vague form of a verb. It's an incomplete sentence. And here's how God introduces himself. He says, listen, Moses, you want to have a nice little box. And it's convenient and it's comprehensible to you. And you want to put me in the box. You want to define me like you do any other word in the dictionary. Like if you don't know a word, what do you do? You look at a dictionary and you find other words you're familiar with to define the word you're, you don't know. He says, listen, you can't define me with a bunch of words. They're inadequate. So he uses this form of the verb to be, Yahweh. He says, I am. And he's referring to time. He says, I am the God of the past. And he anchors it. He goes, tell them that I'm Yahweh. I'm the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am also the God of the present. And I am the God of the future. You can't put me into a comprehensible box that you can carry around and you can distribute and you can explain to everybody. So the very nature of God is this. He was. 
There has never been a time where he hasn't existed. He is active and working in the past. When I look over my shoulder to the way that I was, when I look back to the things that happened, God was there and he has that covered. Currently, whatever I face, if God asked me to go find Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you're gonna have to change everything you've ever known, let my people go. God is here in the present. Then what is Moses doing? He's freaking out about the future. What are they gonna do to me when I get back there? Here's all you need to know, Moses. I am the God who was, I am the God who is at this very moment, and I am the God who will be there and consistent and the same in the days ahead as you face the most terrifying things imaginable. I am that I am. There's a book written some years ago. I love the title. It says, Your God is Too Small. And I would absolutely wholeheartedly agree with the author. My God is too small. And your God is too small. People come to me often and um, they'll say, I don't understand God. And I always have the same answer and I can tell how disappointed they are. I just look at them, I go, I don't either. And, it, you know, for them, it's like nuts. If a pastor doesn't understand God, like that, no, that's not. And I, I, here's what I say. I say, okay, if this like gray mush that I call my brain had the capacity to understand the creator of the universe, that's a wee tiny God, Right? He is so far beyond my comprehension and my understanding. I can learn more and more every year. But the, here's what I find. The more years I learn and I follow and I seek him, the more I realize how vast he is. Here's an example. Oh, I think 15, 16 years ago, I've been a pastor for seven years and I had so many questions about God. And I had determined the only way I would answer all my questions about God is I'd go to seminary, graduate school. So I went to two years of graduate school, very intense. I went to get my questions answered. I graduated and I was disappointed because I had more questions than ever before about God. But I felt closer to him than ever before. This is a God who's big. This is a God who's beyond my comprehension. And yet he's involved intimately. You know what the difference between cats and dogs are? Okay. A dog looks at its owner and says, you feed me, you train me, you bathe me, and you pick up my poop. Therefore, you must be God. That's what a cat does. Cat looks at the owner and says, you feed me, you bathe me, you attempt to train me, and you pick up my poop. Therefore, I must be God, right? It's really the difference between cats and dogs, right? Cats think they're in charge. Dogs are like, <laughs> I think the point of all this is I want to be the dog. I want to be God. You're in a realm I don't understand. You feed me. You clean up after me. You are God. I am in awe. Few things about God. Now, here's the very last point. We'll do this quickly. God's presence. God's presence. This is a theme that is going to carry on 
throughout the Bible. The, the most important thing in the life of the people of Israel and then the life of our lives is that God is present. So remember, Moses says, well, how are you going to do this? What am I going to do? Moses is absolutely consumed with the how. How is this going to happen? And what's God's answer? It's not about how you're going to do it. It's about this. I will be with you. Even interrelates with his name, the God who, the, the God I am. I, I will be in the future. So I, I get consumed with the how. How, God, how is this going to happen? God, if, if I'm available and if my liabilities don't really matter and you're asking me to do something that begin changing the world, how are you going to do it? And this is what God says. I'll be with you. Now, this theme is going to continue. The people are eventually going to get free. They're going to find themselves in the wilderness. They're terrified. What does God tell them? I'll be with you. They build a little temporary church. It's called the tabernacle. God fills it with his presence. They'll build an ark. God fills it with his presence. When they finally get settled decades later, they'll build a temple. God fills it with his presence that God will be with them. And then the New Testament takes it to a whole new level. Once Jesus did what he did on the cross, the problem, the brokenness in humanity is done with. So now where's God's presence? His people. This is you are the temple. You're the, the place where the spirit of God resides in this world. So through it all, here's what I can know. I don't have all the answers. All I know for certain is that God says, I will be with you. And if I really understand that, that changes everything. It changes my Monday through Friday. It changes the way I go about recreation and hobbies. It changes relationships. It changes problems. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not just me trying to convince Pharaoh. No, this is the God who created the universe with me in this moment, in this argument with my spouse, in this confusion, in this painful reality. God is with me. Powerful thing. I want to end by asking four questions. Four questions for you to reflect on. Number one, how does my understanding of God need to expand? We will all, we'll all have a tendency to try to make God as convenient as possible. I do it, you do it. How does my understanding of God need to expand? How do I need to trust him more? How do I need to like, not just try to figure out who he is, but be in awe of who he is? Second question, do I consider myself available? Available. Do I have a tendency to be a cynic and a critic and point out what's wrong? And do I forget that God works in this world through human beings? Can I say with Isaiah? Can I say with Moses? Can I say with, we could go through all the prophets. Here I am. Send me. Are my liabilities looming large in my mind? Are the things from the past that you're to this, to that, that are disqualifying me, do I really believe that God is bigger than my personal failures? Last question. Do I trust, do I believe that the presence of God is with me and that's all that really matters?
Will you pray with me? Lord, reading something that was written thousands of years ago, and it lays out some important, important realities. One is that you work through human beings. Lord, I pray for availability in all of our lives. Here we are. Here we are. Send us. We choose not to be cynics and critics and to think that there's an organization that should do something about this. But we, being your hands and feet and mouthpiece on planet Earth, we're available. Send us. Lord, you're bigger than our liabilities. We trust that. God, help us to balance a healthy view of God, that you are close and you know our names and you are holy and sacred. Help us to live in that tension well. You are the great I am. Teach us what that means. I want to pray in one last way. If you are either watching right now or you're here in the room and you know that there's something that God is doing in your heart and it's time for you to surrender your life to Jesus. I'm not asking do you believe Jesus existed, but are you ready to surrender your life to Jesus saying you are not your own God, that you need a savior? If you're ready for that, would you just boldly just do this? Would you raise your hand and wave at me if you're here in the room? Wave at me, would you please? I want to make eye contact with you. Okay, yeah, beautiful. Thank you, you're his. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, you're his son. Yes, right there as well. Love it. Okay, thank you. Yes, right in the front. Thank you, ma'am. If you're in the balcony, okay, in the very back there, balcony, yes. Yeah, anybody else in the balcony? Okay, yeah, your sons and daughters of God. Beautiful. Now, I can't see you if you're online, but I just want you to do this. Would you, would you acknowledge to God when you say, God, today's a day. I surrender my life to you. Okay, beautiful. Here, but would you, um, would you applaud for those who made that decision? We're so proud of you. Very bold. Now, um, as you go, a couple of thoughts. One, if you raised your hand or maybe you're nervous to do that, if you're online, click on that button. This is, uh, I want to know more about Jesus or I made a decision. We'll get information to you. Or you can go out to the table in the atrium, get a Bible in your hands, help you to start growing. Um, everybody else, be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front that will pray for you. God bless you. You are loved. See you next week.